It's a Wednesday evening in suburban Singapore, around 6.30 p.m. It's warm. The after-work crowd is in t-shirts, flip-flops, passing food stalls with crackling oil and boiling soups. Air conditioners hum, punctuated by laughter from kids on the playground. And then, a wild boar runs into the plaza. It's panicked in a full sprint. People scramble to get out of the way and it slams into a woman, knocks her onto the ground. Still in a panic, it runs towards the nearby shops. The boar hits the glass door of an optometrist. People are confused, double-taking, not sure if it's real. The boar dashes down an alley, headed for a man carrying a toddler. The man manages to step out of the way. The boar continues running through the plaza until it finally escapes the area. The woman it hit was unconscious for 15 minutes. She was later taken to the hospital. The incident was all over the Singaporean news. It launched a national hunt for the offending boar. And it got people asking, where did the boar come from? There's no forest in the area. It's all been developed. But it also begs questions about what happens when we lose touch with our environment and what happens when the world around us is so constructed that we forget we're in nature. Today, stories about coexistence and what it means when we accept the reality of living with nature in our urban spaces. Welcome to Expedition Earth, a podcast where we reconnect to the wonders of our world and a way to protect them. I'm your host, National Geographic Explorer, Lily Sedigan. Together, we'll rediscover what makes us human. Singapore is a garden city. Vertical greenery cascades from high-rises in downtown. Three million trees line the streets and fill the neighborhoods. Rivers and ponds create blue space among the glass and concrete. As a small island nation with over 5.6 million people in just over 700 square kilometers, Singapore created what they call livable density. And in the coming years, they plan a transition to a city in nature. But in a country where everything is accounted for, where the wild places have intentionally been left wild. Is the city ready for what happens as it transitions? So I was giving a presentation about wild primates in Singapore, some of the threats that they face, and what you could do when you see them. This is Andy Ong, a National Geographic explorer and primatologist who studies critically endangered monkeys in Southeast Asia. And at the end of her presentation, there was this boy who was asking me, how long is the tail of a long-tailed macaque? I said, like, oh, it's very long. It's like uh, almost one-third longer than its body. And he was really surprised. He was like, oh, I, I didn't realize that a monkey's tail was so long. So then I asked him, have you seen a wild monkey? He did, in one of the nature parks. But he didn't get a good look, because his mom pulled him away. She was afraid the monkey would attack. So he didn't really have that opportunity and the time to really just observe the animals. 
to just see what the animal is doing. All he learned from that trip was that the monkey is going to attack. So the experience was pretty negative. But I was trying to tell him that, oh, you know, actually 95% of the time, or even like 98% of the time, the monkeys really don't get close to people. They don't care about you. Andy studied the raffles banded langurs in Singapore, macaques in Malaysia, white-handed gibbons in Thailand, the Tonkin stubnose monkey in Vietnam, just to name a few. Her goal is to see every species of primate on the planet, and that's more than 500. How many have you seen so far? I think I've only seen like 35, <laughs> not even 10%, but I'm getting there. So I have to ask, do monkeys eat bananas? <laughs> they don't actually go for the bananas. Really? Really. <laughs> of course, if you throw bananas at them, they would go for it. <laughs> Andy focuses on studying little-known primates, with the ultimate goal of protecting their habitats. And so I guess I took it upon myself to find those really endangered species and then collecting whatever information that I could with the team uh, in order to provide data to national agencies and to collaborators like NGOs or the universities so that we could use those information to plan for their conservation. As the president of the Jane Goodall Institute Singapore, part of Annie's job is helping people understand the animals building bridges between the non-human primate world and the human primate world. The vision and mission is for people to coexist with wildlife and the environment. And we do so by inspiring, by educating, by sharing knowledge so that people can do something positively for the community, for animals and the environment. Hence, we do a lot of outreach on the do's and don'ts. Very simple. Whenever you encounter animals, what to do? The city and nature idea is one of the pillars of the Singapore Green Plan 2030. Along with adding electric vehicles and green buildings, the government plans to plant one million trees, add park spaces within 10 minutes of every block, and set aside 50% more land for nature parks. But with more green will come more wildlife, and more wildlife means more interactions with humans. Even though we do have a lot of nature parks and green spaces, I think the kids were brought up in a way through their parents' encounter and stories that nature can be very scary. I mean, keeping a distance is good, but not like emotionally, right? I mean, you need to be connected to nature as well through your own personal experiences so that you can grow to be affectionate or respectful appreciative of nature, not by stories of, you know, bad experiences that other people encounter or thought that it could be when they don't actually experience it themselves. Yes, I'm worried because it deprives our younger generation the opportunity to really see nature as itself, to build their own stories and experiences like, like I had, right, the experience of going out to Thailand to look at the gibbons. Gibbons are sometimes known as small apes. They're tailless, found in tropical areas, and known for being fast, making these incredible swings from branch to branch at high speeds, sometimes even leaping eight meters through the air. And Andy's job was to follow them. I think it was 5.30 a.m. or 6 a.m. We were tracking to the sleeping tree of the Gibbons, uh, where they were last seen by the researchers there. And so we were really quiet, just walking in the forest. 
and it was really cold. <laughs> I wasn't ready for this. I was told, this is the spot. Be quiet and wait for the sunrise, wait for the gibbons to get up, and then we'll follow them for the rest of the day, no matter where they go. It was dark. Andy was with a team of Thai researchers, hours from the city, deep in a national park. She remembers being sleepy. I don't know what I was expecting, really. But when I finally saw the gibbons and they were waking up, so it was quite slow. Like they were just getting up and the sun was just rising. It was starting to get brighter and brighter. And then finally, they were making this loud calls. It was so loud. You started to hear different sounds and then the sun is getting higher and higher. You started to see more and more. It was Andy's first time seeing them, hearing them. I could not see the whole body. It's probably just a limb <laughs> or two. They would be also making this loud call. So I could see that they were opening their mouth and, you know, making this really, really loud calls that resonated in the forest. And then afterwards, there would be another gibbon from a further distance away responding to that call. So the whole forest was really crowded with gibbons and also birds and other animals. They're usually announcing that, hey, I'm here. <laughs> and then when you have other gibbons responding, they will also know that, oh, okay, so there's a group over there. Okay, so there's another group over here. It's kind of like roll call, right? <laughs> After you make the first call and then another one will be calling and followed by the next one. Um, but there's also duets where the males and the females will be calling and it's like a way of bombing their bonds and, you know, assuring each other. Andy and the team stayed in the forest, observing the gibbons and their behavior. And she had this brief moment when she realized her relationship with nature had changed. So then after, I guess, wow, four days, five days, it was so tiring. But I realized that I really want to run around in the forest. <laughs> and that was what I did. When she got back to Singapore... Andy began to recognize that the challenge of coexistence comes when people have different expectations of what nature is and what it should be. They might think that, oh, you know, I want to be close to the green. I want to see the trees. I want to hear the birds. But then when it's actually a monkey showing up or it's actually the crows, <laughs> not the beautiful birds that you think it would be, or like snakes coming to your house because they're just so close to nature areas. Nature is not just the beautiful things like hornbills or like the beautiful birds, but they also consist of other animals that might not be typically defined as cute or beautiful, but they are also part of nature, part of the ecosystem. Rather than chasing them away or like removing them from the habitat, we could just do little things to prevent negative interactions. And that's all we need. We don't need you to like the animals, but you know, at least be neutral so that we can all coexist. Sometimes, these mismatched expectations come from having to share a limited space and not knowing how to interact with one another. Most of the animals, they move for just two reasons. One, for food. One, for mating opportunities. They're not interested in humans. Feeding animals is one of the main ways residents and wildlife develop unhealthy relationships with one another. 
I think it was one day we got this complaint from this resident saying that there's a lot of monkeys just sitting you know, outside her gate and then walking into a house, go to a kitchen to get food and she doesn't know what to do. She told us that one day she was just outside, you know, minding her own business and there was just a monkey walking outside. And so this resident was really afraid that, oh, would this monkey be waiting for an opportunity to jump into my house? And so what she did was she went to the kitchen, she grabbed an orange and just threw it out of the gate. Of course, the monkey would run after the orange and disappear. So she was really happy that, oh, okay, I have chased the monkey away. But then the next day, the same monkey came with another monkey. <laughs> Probably, you know, spreading the message saying that, oh, this household has free oranges flying out of the house. Of course, this resident was really terrified, right? So she went to the kitchen and grabbed like two apples because there are two monkeys. But of course, we know, right? The next day, it'd be like five monkeys just waiting outside. And so we needed to tell her that you really cannot use food to like chase away the monkey or to prevent this from happening you really need to make sure that you provide zero food and over time then the animals will know that they could get nothing from you and then they will move on you know back to their habitat misunderstanding animals can lead to fear fear of being harmed fear of even interacting with them and stories play a big part in how we perceive and understand the natural world around us it's a, a lack of their own personal experience with our animals. Whatever stories that they have heard, whether from friends, it might be one negative interaction that was spread across their community, their group of friends, their network. So they have this impression that, for example, monkeys will scratch you. Monkeys are always aggressive. There are incidents that happen. And so, you know, the 5% of incidents that happen uh, they're reported 95% of the time in the news. And so that's the impression that people would have of wild animals. And while messaging plays a key role in understanding these incidents, Andy explains there's always more to the story. It's always from the person's point of view. It's very difficult to, to then say that the headline could be something else. Like, you know, person brought food to feed monkey. And then monkey took the food. And so I think we need to first be factual about what actually happened. Um, did the person actually do something that might have triggered certain reactions from um, animal? But I know it's very difficult because we are always coming from our point of view. Which brings us back to our wild boar story. The national hunt. The way it was told. The incident scared people. But Andy saw the story through a different lens. I felt that this incident was really very unfortunate in the sense that this pig found itself in a place that I guess it didn't belong and also it didn't want to be there. In the process, a person was injured. I don't think it was, you know, a purposeful act. But the consequence uh, was that the animal had to be put down because it had injured someone. But, you know, moving forward, how do we deal with similar incidents in the future? I think I questioned that a lot. Could there be a better way to resolve this? Of course, I'm not saying that the pig is not a threat to a person. I mean, the person was injured. But could we have done more in terms of understanding why did the pig occur there? Was someone feeding the animal? Was there some construction work around? Why can't it remain in the park? And it's a pretty large park. And I don't hear any follow-ups. From there, I only know that the park is now reopened for residents to use, but there were no follow-ups on like 
Why did the ping occur there? Auntie found herself disappointed by the response to the boar incident, the fact that it focused on the fear. But what could have happened if there was more understanding? If instead, it was an opportunity to question more, learn more about what to do when we encounter wildlife. I think the first thing that we could do is to ensure that we don't have any food around that's visible. So if you're carrying like bags, plastic bags of food or like beverages, to please then keep them away in your bags, just out of sight, so that the animals wouldn't think that, oh, you are like a walking vending machine. <laughs> Second thing is to maintain a good distance, at least two meters if you can, two to three meters, so that the animals won't feel that you are intruding into their space because after all, we are so much bigger than them. When you're taking photographs, do not use like flash because you don't want to scare the animal as well. And then try to be quiet, you know, because again, you're walking into a habitat that belongs to the animals. You're walking into their homes, right? Just be respectful and observe from a distance and have that sense of appreciation. People call Andy the Jane Goodall of Singapore. But the journey to get there hasn't been easy. There was even a moment when it seemed like she wasn't even going to get through her undergraduate research. Andy was searching for langurs, monkeys with dark fur and long tails that make a crashing sound as they jump from tree to tree. Langurs are elusive, difficult to find in the wild. And at the time, some people thought they were already extinct in Singapore. And so going out there uh, Mondays to Fridays, mornings and afternoons for two months, I really couldn't find the langurs. So I really thought to myself, oh, I'm going to end my project already with zero sightings of the langurs. The students in her class gave weekly updates. Most of her colleagues were doing lab research and had data to show. But Andy kept coming back with no langur sightings. I went to this trail and that trail and I didn't see the langurs. It's quite sad. And then you'll be wondering, did I do anything wrong? Am I just not observant enough? What more could I do? But then my, my prof was really encouraging. So he said that no data, no observational data is data because you know that at this time, at this location, you didn't see the langurs. They are not there. They must be somewhere else. And so you can you know, slowly collect this data and this is still data. But after two months, Andy's professor gave her an ultimatum. If she couldn't find any langurs, she'd have to change her research focus. I really cannot stop there, right? I mean, I have to persevere. I want to find the langurs. Andy decided to take a different approach. She'd heard about langur sightings in Malaysia, so she and a group of friends traveled to the national park on the border with Singapore to find them. The forest was swampy. Deep greens and browns, tall trees. The air was thick with the smell of rotting logs, the buzz of mosquitoes. And within five minutes, they found langurs. The quick success in Malaysia got Andy thinking. Maybe she didn't know what to look for back in Singapore. Maybe the langurs were there. She just needed to look differently. There's this saying that I've heard when you're walking in the forest and then the leaves are raining down. If you manage to catch a falling leaf, you could make a wish and it could come true. One day, I was walking and then I couldn't see the langurs. It was just one of those days again. And then I saw this leaf, a dead leaf that was like coming down very slowly. So I was like, okay, maybe I can make my wish. So I 
grab this leaf and managed to like grab the leaf. But before I could make any wish, I heard the crashing in front of me and I saw the Langer. I was like, oh, oh, okay. So <laughs> I didn't make a wish, but the wish came true. <laughs> the Langer's there. I'm keeping this piece of leaf. Staring into the eyes of a chimpanzee, I saw a thinking, reasoning personality looking back. That's Dr. Jane Goodall from the 2017 documentary, Jane. And the more I learned, the more I realized how like us they were in so many ways. I felt very much as though I was learning about fellow beings capable of joy and sorrow, fear and jealousy. In many ways, Andy's work follows in Dr. Goodall's footsteps. As Andy spent more time with the Langers, she began to have a similar recognition, that they each had individual personalities, that in many ways, they were like us. There's this adult male that we have named Dozy, because it really likes to spend its time dozing off, resting. Usually on the edge, you know, they, when they see someone, you know, they'll be like, oh my God, what is this human being doing here? Then they'll be hiding away. But this adult male will be like, oh, it's just human. It's okay. The Langers had their own likes, dislikes, their own quirks. She was just sitting behind this tree, this branch, and trying to hide away, very still. Then <laughs> thinking that we might not be able to notice her. And then after a few seconds, she would like pop her head out just to see if we're still there. And then our eyes met. And she's like, okay, they're still there. And then she would go back to hide behind a tree. So that was really interesting that, you know, they are very cautious. I mean, at least for this individual, very cautious, very careful. And yeah, or like some other individuals, they are more playful. Andy became the president of the Jane Goodall Institute Singapore in 2018. Their vision is people living in harmony with animals and nature. Which may sound ambitious, but Andy is hopeful. We still have a long way to go, but I'm seeing very positive steps already in the last couple of years. Especially with COVID, when people are stuck in Singapore, they couldn't really go overseas. So they had to turn to our own backyard, right? Um, the forests, the marine spaces in Singapore. And so there is this increase in awareness amongst the community about the importance of preserving what we have left. Because as Singapore becomes a city in nature, it becomes clearer and clearer that coexistence, harmony with nature, depends on humans, on our behavior, on our attitudes, and on the choices we make about how we live with the world around us. Admittedly, we're not the only beings with personalities, reasoning powers, altruism, and emotions, nor are we the only beings capable of mental as well as physical suffering. With language, we can ask, as can no other living being, those questions about who we are and why we are here. And this highly developed intellect means, surely, that we have a responsibility towards the other life forms of our planet, whose continued existence is threatened by the thoughtless behavior of our own human species. 
when I was 10 years old, I was given a monkey as a pet. It was a monkey that was brought back by relatives who were sailors to Africa. So it was a juvenile when it came to my house. He was on actually my dad's shoulders, um, chained up around the neck. But to me, I didn't really think too much about it. I just thought that it's a fluffy animal, really cute with a very long tail. And he has this golden brown coloured fur. To me, it was just really bright. And I've not seen this animal before. So I was very curious. And then I asked my dad to hand the chain over to me so that he could sit on my shoulders. And he was very light, probably three kilograms. And maybe at that time, even at 10 years old, I had this motherly feeling or urge to want to take care of it. So I guess I took it upon myself to care for it for the next two to four years. His name was Aboy because I wasn't creative at all. So as a 10-year-old, I named him Aboy. <laughs> like a local name, right? So like a boy, so like Aboy. If it's a girl, it would be our girl. <laughs> I'm not sure why or what incident that got me into this crying spree. So I was crying quite a bit on one day after school and I was sitting next to Aboy. And he just walked up to me using his fingers to wipe my tears. So because I guess it's softy and he was just curious and he started to... To me, he was wiping away my tears. And so I thought that he was consoling me. So I felt that, wow, he's there for me. Oh, and he was also, (laughs) you know, trying to groom me, like on my scalp. So I felt that he was taking care of me in some ways, like I was taking care of him. So my neighbours, they didn't say much about the fact that I had a monkey. All they commented was that, oh, that's a monkey. Oh, um, where do you get it from? Wow, cute. That's about it. So nobody told me that it was wrong, that it's illegal. In the third and fourth year, he relied on me more to play with him because he was getting very bored. And so every time I finished my school, I would hurry back home so that I could spend more time with him because for like a good five to six hours when I was in school, nobody would be paying attention to him. And so he would just be chained up under my sink, spending that time just walking up and down, up and down in the small little space. So whenever I'm in school or out with my friends, I'll be wondering what is my monkey doing? When I'm enjoying myself, I'm wondering whether he was enjoying himself. And that was when I realised that having him chained up at home as he gets older and older was probably a miserable thing for him. It was really difficult because if your pet, animal, your good friend, you guys had a good relationship, nothing was wrong, but somehow it's wrong to be together and you had to make the decision to let him or her go. So that was very difficult. So the first thing I did was I went online to find um, help which organisations might be able to send monkeys back to Africa. It took about one year. So during this time, he was placed at the zoo so that we could get all the paperwork done. 
And then it was due to be sent back to Africa. So I went to the zoo to see him for the last time. He was in this pretty large crate. There was this really small opening, uh, a few openings on this crate. He was looking out because it was really crowded with people from the zoo, from the media, from the government agency, because it was the first time that a wild animal was being sent back to its home country. So there were a lot of attention. It was really crowded, rowdy, noisy. And he was just there by himself. It was really emotional for me because it has been a year. I have not seen him for during that time. And then finally I got to see him and I, it was the last time. I knew it was the last time. So I walk up to him and I squatted down next to him. I just put my hand in to this opening and I think he was just sniffing and I was just holding his little fingers, the same fingers that were grooming me and playing with me for the past couple of years. Um, yeah. It was hard for you, huh? Yeah. Anyway, so it was good that he was sent back. For the first two years, I received news from the rehabilitation center on how he was doing. He met another monkey of the same species and they formed a family unit. And then they had two kids. I think it was a really good ending for him and also a good one for me. This podcast is brought to you by Now TV, home of world-class entertainment. To learn more about Andy's inspiration, Jane Goodall, you can watch National Geographic's film, Jane. With scenes from over 100 hours of never-before-seen footage, the film takes an intimate look into the life of the woman who shook science with her determination to understand the world of chimpanzees. Expedition Earth is produced by National Geographic Asia in partnership with the National Geographic Society. I'm your host, Lily Sedegat. Thank you for listening.